out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week it is going to be the turn of the musician and record producer. It is John Porter, who started life in 1940-something. But um, yes, met uh, Brian Ferry in, in Newcastle and was in the band The Gas Board, but also worked um, with Roxy Music on their second album. For your pleasure and work with Brian Ferry throughout the 70s and elsewhere. But also, and this is one of the reasons we wanted John on the show, was that in the 80s he was the go-to man for lots of indie bands, including the Smiths' first album as well as lots of others. And um, yes, anyway, I won't go on about it because frankly you're going to hear all about this in the interview. Anyway, take notes because I will test you at the end to make sure you were paying attention. But look... John, yes, after several minutes of casual chat, and one of those um, conversations we spoke about was a very obscure record released in 1978 by Cuckoo, who featured John LaSalle's and Mike Story, and they had a track called The Last Barsham Fair, and uh, from East Anglia, as I am. Um, yes, The Last Barsham Fairs, well, the fairs were happening from 1970 to 1975, and they became quite sort of famous in a way. And um, yes, they did this one particular song. So we were talking about that, which obviously gets edited out. And then we got down to that very exciting subject that was the 80s and indie pop. And this was um, John's reply to that. Anyway, enjoy. John, take it away. I worked at the Beeb for a bit. I used to produce for John Peel and, you know, and the other guys. I can't remember their names. There's Del Griffith, Mike Robinson. Oh, I used to work with Mike a lot. Yeah, I like Robbo, yeah. Yes, and Del Griffith, who's... Yeah, but I mean, the programmes, I can't remember. The, I, I used to do stuff for John Peel, but I used to do stuff for some of the other guys. But I don't know, I've worked, I was a contract producer. I wasn't hired by the BBC. They basically used to call me up and say, can you do Tuesday or Monday? So I had a different contract for every day. I think I used to get 50 quid a day. But over a period of like something less than two years... I did something like, I don't know, somewhere between 250 and 300 bands or something. It was unbelievable. Every, you know, sometimes three or four days a week I would do another band, you know, all these bands. Yes, well, I could, <laughs> I could imagine, actually. That was quite something. So, because you were born, interestingly, I think the same year as David Bowie and Lemmy, which was... Um, oh, 47. 47. I think that was their year. And uh, so it was obviously a good year for music, wasn't it? Well, good year for people to become, you know. Well, I think and that whole period post-war, 45, you know, that whole period post-war was probably a good time to be, to be born from, you know, because rock and roll, you know, because also, I mean, to me, I don't know where I'm going from a complete tangent, but I, I, you know, I always loved R&B and American music. I didn't never really like that much English music except the Beatles. Um, so that period after the war, when they all came home, was a fantastic period for R&B in America, a real blossoming in, in L.A. and in the South, in New Orleans, Houston, places like that. And I loved that music. So consequently, kids of my age were growing up with that music in America, and then they started to make music. And, you know, that's what, so soul music came out of that and all that and funk and all that stuff. And I loved all that, so I was just at the right age to be able to, lucky, 
I mean, I consider myself so lucky for that because if I have a kid now at 17 listening to this shit that's <laughs> called music, I would be, you know, it wouldn't be the same. I it would be confusing. It's, it's very confusing. Yeah, I'd probably be a cab driver. <laughs> yes, I know. Just under, not quite understand it. So with with that, I know with both actually Lemmy and David Bowie, they'd always say when asked who the, their main kind of influence was or were, they'd always say Little Richard was the first one, and then they would mention all the usual ah, like Buddy Guy, not Buddy Guy, and Buddy Holly and Eddie Cochran yeah. and Elvis. What were your kind of what was your kind of exactly moment? Exactly that. Exactly that. I came from a musical family, but it was all, you know classical music and opera and stuff. And I, well, there's a few things happened, but the main one that I remember was hearing Little Richard on Uncle Mac's program. And that changed my life because I knew that there was certain music that I, I liked music, but it never seemed to be quite enough. So there would be, you know, there would be a lot of music at home and the more strident kind of classical music I, I kind of could sort of understand it and I kind of like bark because it made sense and all that but then I don't know how it must have been about 58 so I was probably about 10 or 11 and I heard little Richard singing Lucille and I thought it was it was like that scene in the Blues Brothers where he sees the light it was sudden <laughs> at that moment I think things went from black and white into colour you know yes. and it still does it to me if I hear that now Yes, it absolutely. Still, it still gets it's my hair kind of stands on end. What little I have. <laughs> but did you? So little Richard was it, and then I'll just and then very something else happened not long after. Well, actually, it was a couple of years after. And I'll try and keep the story as short as I can. But it's um, it was crucial to me. The, I had a pal who lived next door, a bit older than me, and he had an elder sister. And his elder sister had a boyfriend who was a record distributor. He used to take the white labels and stuff around to, you know, around to record shops so they got order. And he used to give the records he didn't want anymore to his girlfriend, who was the, and she would sort them out. The ones she didn't want, she would give to her younger brother. Yes. And then the ones that he didn't want, which was kind of a very slow trickle, would give them to me. And so in 1960, when it was all shadows and you know to me 1960 was not for english it was dreadful it was like rock and roll was over it was kind of you know shadows could richard stuff like that marty wilde who's quite good and i got two records the same day two white labels one of which was freddie king and his orchestra hideaway which i guess the label parlophone had released because they thought oh it's an instrumental guitar instrumental like the shadows or whatever so and it was called Freddie King and His Orchestra, and it had Hideaway on one side, and on the other side was um, I Love the Woman, with incredible singing. And I wasn't sure what he was, what the main instrument was. I'd never heard anything like it. I mean, it, strangely now, I mean, it's so obvious, but at the time, with the vibrato and the sustain on the guitar, I wasn't sure whether it was a fiddle or what it was. And so I thought, that's the noise I want to make. And the same day, I got a James Brown and the Famous Flames record that they gave to me called um, This Old Heart, with James screaming. You know, yes. Just unbelievable. And those two records, they sort of, in a way, changed my life. After that, it was, okay, This is I've got to do this. This is, um, 
And I think I was 12, 13, something like that. The perfect Lucky. age. That was real, just, just, just good luck. You know? Yes, it <laughs> All is. All those filters, I ended up with those two records. You know, just, uh, and in those days, it was hard to find out what about stuff. You know, without the internet and everything, but, you know, there was, there was the Melody Maker. And in America, there weren't, there was Cashbox and Billboard. There weren't any music magazines, so-called. They were industry magazines. There was no... So to find information about where things came from, who wrote them, who the musicians were, and all that stuff, you really had to, um, you know, you had to put the time in. It was, it was very limited, the amount of information you could find. Certainly in England it was. Obviously, if you were in America, there were more opportunities. But, um, but I just wanted, after that, I was just on a quest. Yes. <laughs> you know. <laughs> And it's interesting because I suppose it was, I mean, slightly similar during the 70s and 80s of spending Saturday afternoons going to record shops, especially second-hand ones, and just the process of kind of yeah. leafing through all these things, looking for either a obscure obscure name, a label, or something that John Peel probably played, and you're sort of wondering if it's there somewhere, or just looking at the Woolworths Tempe rack, really, which is quite interesting. Yeah. But then yeah. during the 60s, you would have seen that whole change you were the perfect age to have seen that transformation yeah. from the sort of you know as philip larkin said something like in one of his poems you know the 60s started in 63 with lady chatterley's love and the first beatles album and it kind of you know because it never ties in beautifully does it yeah. the, each no, decade when england became technicolor technicolor we love the technicolor. i mean i remember you know it's funny because the 50s i mean i you know it did seem to me my memories of the 50s are kind of like a black and white movie almost. But my memories of the 60s, I mean, I guess some to do with the age as well, with my age, but that's, you know, it's suddenly uh, swinging London and all that. It, it did seem that, you know, bright colours suddenly came to evidence, you know. But it must have been kind and of that, odd to see so much kind of um, every week. I know it gets mythologised a bit, but, you know, every week, or month, there's this kind of a classic album has come out. Obviously, at the time, it's not oh, a classic. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, the Be when the Beatles... I saw the Beatles just before they had a hit record. I think they recorded it that week, maybe. I saw them at Leeds Corn Exchange, and they were really good. There was very... I'd never really... I don't think I'd seen a band where the singing was so good, and they were playing... And basically, they were just copying... America, you know, they were trying to be an R&B band because they had they liked the same kind of music that I like, and they were amazing. I thought they, I'd never heard anything like that. I thought they were great, and then that you know, then they were great, and then suddenly there was all this stuff coming out, you know, and that I went and went to university, um, you know, in the mid '60s. I think I went in '65. I joined a band in Newcastle straight away. Within about three days of being there, I joined a band. But I also worked at the Club of Gogo as a DJ, right? Um, and 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 used to and used to not book the bands, but I would suggest to the manager that you know these were good bands to book. And I saw everybody. I mean, and because I was a DJ, I had my, my you know I had my little podium on the edge of the stage and the little dressing room that the band used. So. I got to see everybody from like three feet away, you know, and talk to them, for everybody, the Who, Hendrix, Stones, everybody. Blimey. And uh, 
so again, I would you know that was luck. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I I remember um, I booked Led Zeppelin for their first gig as well. Funny enough. Blimey, that is that is that, that, that's you're sort of slightly winning hands down on the interesting <laughs> stories here, aren't you? Really, not many people can say that, really, especially you know, decades later. Well, I I wondered, I thought about that, and then I I always said, oh, I booked Led Zeppelin for their first gig, and they did two sets, the same set twice. One time they were called the New Yardbirds, and the next set they were called Led Zeppelin, but it was the same set. And I thought I always told that to people. And so, and now at my advanced age, I think, did you, you know, have you actually made that up? But I think it was only a couple of weeks ago that um, I read something, and where um, I think it was Robert Plant was talking to somebody, it was some old interview, and he said, yeah, our first gig was in Newcastle at the Mayfair Ballroom. And then I saw another thing online showing um, Mayfair Ballroom gigs, a whole list of gigs in the 60s, and, and there it was. It was uh, the New York. So, did you see Terry Reed at that stage? Because he was kind of the, the one of the hot shots of of the decade, wasn't he? With his who Terry Reed, who went and oh fa- Terry, well te- they, te- they offered Terry the gig, or or Pagey offered Terry the gig, and Terry didn't want it, and he he recommended Bob Plant, Percy Plant, as he was known then, who um, was a low. You know, they were both from that part of the country. There was a few good singers. Jess Roden was also from there. And Terry, yeah, I, yeah, Terry was fantastic. We became sort of quite, not, not close friends, but, but we, uh, we hung out together a couple of times. He, he also pinched my girlfriend yes. in Newcastle and took her, and she disappeared for two days. He took her, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. he, um, took her to his cottage. Oh, yeah, Terry Reed, yeah, great singer, still a good singer, good, yes. great guitar player also. Well, absolutely. The band that Terry had with them um, in England with Lee Miles, who was a bass player he picked up in L.A. and played with some of the Motown acts, and Alan White on drums, this is before, yes, I think, yes, before, yes, and David Lindley yes. playing lap steel guitar and other instruments. At the time, I th- that was a, that was the best band on the English circuit on a good night. They didn't do many gigs. They mainly, because they had, Terry had a cottage and they all lived in the country and used to jam. But them, I, I thought that they and the Grease Band, who was Joe's Cocker's band, I thought they were by far the best live bands in England. Yeah. If you caught them, if they- you caught them on a good night. That was interesting because there was that Glastonbury Festival film from 1970 where they got Terry Reid doing a song. And Linda, I did that one. And I Linda appears, doesn't she? Linda, Linda Lu- Lewis. The amazing Linda Lewis. So, um, yeah. Quite yeah. extraordinary, really. Yes. Yeah, she used to come and sit and we used to play at the country club in, in um, Haverstock Hill together. And she used to c- come and sit in. Incredible voice. A lot, yeah. So did you come across then, on that front, Peter Jay and the Jaywalkers? Because he now is in Great Yarmouth, isn't he? He runs the Hippodrome. But I think Terry was... Does he really? I don't know. I mean, he was always on the circuit, and they used to back people up. They used to back up the occasional rock yes. and roll, you know, American guys, I think. Yeah. Well, I know they that... They were good. Yes. They were good. He he was quite the business. So yeah, yeah. So him and his family, because he's getting on. He's got a son who runs the Hippodrome in Great Yarmouth. So, wow. 
I know, it all makes sense, doesn't it? It does all make sense. But did you... It's I'm, funny, you know, it's quite a small scene in those days. So all those bands I used to book at the Go-Go in Newcastle, I mean, if, if I took everybody who played there over a period of a month, I mean, that was, that was end up being, you know, that huge American invasion was mostly those guys, you know. Yes. I mean, I used to see Eric Clapton, who see Eric a lot. We became good friends because he was totally into Freddie King, and we were the only two people that we knew who even knew who Freddie King was at that time. But I remember um, I used to book um, what's his name, Reg, Reg Dwight's band, um, oh, Elton John's band, yes. Bluesology. They were good for like a Wednesday night, which was a cheap night, and you know, and they they were cheap. They were like thirty-five quid or something. <laughs> <laughs> It's worth having, but so, but you know, it was a kind of small, quite a small scene, the English music scene. But, but I mean, it's huge things, you know, blossomed out of it, really. Well, I guess it's the same, you know, when you fast forward a few decades, well, decades, when the Sex Pistols, I suppose, played in Manchester, and I think most of the audience, all of 20 of them, went on to form other bands who became, you know, quite well known in the 80s. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, so most scenes. I remember it was um, Eric from the Animal. Are you from Manchester? No, I'm from Norwich, um, ish. But I remember Eric Burton from the Animals. You know, talking about the '60s. He said it was really small. You know, it was like really. You know, you kind of think that everyone's doing the '60s thing that you see on in film and documentaries, but it was just a handful of people, and um, and that was it really. There yeah. wasn't. There wasn't. So you go to a club, you know, like um, Speakeasy or any of those clubs in London. And you know, you'd see our, you'd see half, half the bands in England would be there. You know, or people from you see, you know, the Stones and the Beatles and. Well, I would would imagine that scene in London with Joe Boyd and the UFO and and IT and Barry Miles, that must have felt like a real small community of people who went every week. Yeah, well, it was, you know, it was. I mean, overall, it was a small community of people. Everybody, and, you know, a lot of success now, people who have been successful played in a lot of bands, you know. In those days, you were on the circuit. That's how you made your dough. There wasn't really any recording going on that much so there's you know there was a comparatively until i would say about 1967 maybe up to that point then it be you know when the albums became a thing as opposed to singles and then a lot more bands started to get um get record deals but i remember seeing a lot of bands who were great live and thinking why the fuck haven't they got a record deal well subsequently they did you know bands like um i don't know family and you know stuff like that graham bond and all those bands i mean sometimes they were really really good but um unless you were you know went to clubs nobody knew about them really yes well i I sort of realized in this show, especially with a lot of these 80s bands, I mean, they did a, a good body of work and and when you listen to them now, it's amazing, but they didn't ever even get to that independent kind of stage of, of like the Smiths did in the 80s, you know, they still yeah. they were still, they still got that kind of I wouldn't, I don't know, cult following or something but they, you know, it's obviously yeah. after two albums they thought, actually, no one's really that interested in this, which is a shame, but as everyone says in music, it's all about the timing, I guess, and that's probably... Yeah. One one of the aspects to it because I did an interview with Richard Strange who was in the Doctors of Madness and he said 
we were two years too early for punk, but everybody in the audience went on to form punk bands and became, you know, because they were around at 74 and punk kind of hit in 70, 76. 76. So he, at the age of 25, already felt a bit past it. Past it. <laughs> we laugh at that now, don't we? But, you know, yes, it's, a, it's often. But then when you got to sort of the late 60s, I mean, you were still obviously university at that stage. When did you start to become a member of a band yourself? Because you were in this one called the Gas Board. The Gas Board. Well, that's what I've been playing in bands in Leeds when I was at school, sort of um, local band. And, um, you know, getting basically getting just learning how to play as one did in those days. It was kind of, um, you know, it was sort of, well, it was a bit like, in, in a sense, the punk thing was great in that anybody could pick up an instrument and go and, you know, form a band. And it was a bit the same in that when I started in about 1960, in the, you know, stuff that was really big, successful records like the Shadows, you know, all that instrumental stuff, Shadows, Ventures, and all those kind of things, Dwayne Eddy, all that stuff. And basically, all those tunes, first of all, you could tune your guitar to them because they were always in the E&A or whatever. So, and so you could tune your guitar to the first chorus, sort of. Second one, you could learn the tune. And by the last end of the last chorus, you could play the song. And that was probably a number one hit. So basically, you know, you could you could play these tunes quite easily um, with the, after he's only been playing a few weeks. Whereas obviously what happened before the punk thing is, you know, you had all these bands with all these musicians who were actually some really good musicians. And the punks just thought, well, fuck that. You know, I can't be bothered to, <laughs> to sit down for 10 years and learn how to play that, you know. So we'll just... So that's how punk kind of became successful in that it was kids learning to play. Whereas when I started, kids learning to play could actually, you know, play the, play all, all the stuff that was really popular at that time. I mean, there was no way some kid of 12 or 13 was going to be able to play like um, Pink Floyd or... <laughs> ELP or the well, Chris, Chris Squire on bass. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. This like, uh, you know, so, so that was another lucky, uh, you know, lucky timing. And all those, you know, all my generation, all those guitar players, you know, like Eric and Martin Offler and Dave Gilmore, we all started off pretty much the same, same time, same record collection. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, same thing, coming in from school and looking at the Fender Strat in the shop window for, for an hour and missing all the buses and all that stuff that we all did. <laughs> yes. But, but then, then during the 70s, you're, you're very much taken up with Roxy Music at this stage, aren't you? Well, yeah, I mean, Brian, I was at university with, um, Brian was at, Brian Ferry was at, um, in the year above me. He was the second year when I was starting. And he had a band, The Gasport, and um, I joined, like I say, I joined the back, his band, I think, within a week of getting to university. And um, so when we left, he he was, he was started Roxy and uh, and offered me the gig as a guitar player, which um, I didn't really w- want to do. I was sick of all that art school shit. And um, I just wanted to 
being James Brown's band. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, but I was, yes, yeah, so I was around at the beginning of that. And in fact, I had a band, I was playing with Carl Grimes' band called Uncle Dog, I think. And um, so I, when Brian was sort of getting people for Roxy, I kind of helped him a bit and I think he used the rehearsal rooms we used with our equipment, stuff like that. So I knew what was going on, but I just didn't want to do it. Yes. And um, then I went off to America, I think, and I came back. And while I was in America, suddenly I, I saw all these things. I written Melody Maker, and Richard Williams had taken a liking to them. And suddenly this, this band, which had been theoretical, to, as far as I knew, I didn't even know they were playing any gigs or anything, suddenly was becoming successful. And I came back, and Graham, who was an old pal of mine, he was also in the gas board, the bass player, Graham left. And Brian said, well, he just asked me if I'd do the record. Right. Because they were a bit stuck. So I said, yeah, sure, I'll do the record, but I don't want to, you know, but you've got to find a bass player. And um, he actually, they didn't find a bass player. So I went on the road with him for a bit, but I really didn't want to do it. Looking back on it, this was really stupid. It was a great <laughs> opportunity, but I didn't take it. But at the same time, we got on well in the studio. So Brian had his solo thing wanted to make a solo record said well will you produce it with me and do all that stuff so so I did yeah so Brian and I did quite a lot well it's amazing because you, you know on that album you did with Roxy Music which was for your pleasure you do the classic song in every home in every dream home every, in every home a heartache a heartache which is quite yeah. amazing, isn't it, really? You know, for 1973, I think. It was long. I believe it was really long. I think we edited it down. I don't know how long it was, but it was ever... I think it had 17 verses initially. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But anyway, I mean, in incredible. And then, obviously, you did the solo work with, with dear old Brian as well, which was... Um, God, yes, I mean, he was he was a bit like Rod Stewart at that stage. He sort of had the band and his solo career, which was... Yes, that's right, at the same time, yeah. Which was yeah. quite... No one has well, ever done Well, he wanted to do all these cover songs, and which wasn't suitable for, for Roxy to do, so it kind of made sense. Yes. And, and uh, I've always felt the same. I've always thought there's so many great, great songs out there that people don't know about. And it's like somebody will have a hit with one back in the day, you know. And then... Uh, Nobody hears it again. I always thought, well, there's so many great songs already written. Let's. I like doing covers. I still, I still do, you know. I yes. still do. Well, I know Brian Brian has spent a long lot of his life doing covers. But then just, yeah, yeah. just fast forward, how did you, and this is probably the most obscure one, but you know I'm going to ask it, don't you? How did you find James LaSalle? And, oh, yes, the Barsham Fairs. How did you... Did... Um, I was... We were... I think I met him at Barsham Fair. Oh, I right. So, so yeah, you and Mike Story. He and Mike Story were both... There was a piano out in the woods. <laughs> Just this upright piano beating up upright in the woods. And they were... They were both playing it together. You know, Mike down the bottom and James at the top. And I thought they were fun. And we had some friends in common. We kind of... He had that band, I think, Global Village Trucking Company. Oh, yes, James, that's James right. Did. And I think it was as a result of that, that Barsham Fair, that Cuckoo formed, I think. Yeah, I think... I think so, I... and, and I, I think that was... 
I think so. Or again, I think maybe there was still, you know, people still, musicians still played in a couple of bands. There was always, you know, now they call that side projects. In those days, he basically wanted to work. That's how you made your money. So if you could get four or five gigs a week. Yes, absolutely. Playing with two or three bands, that was great, you know. Well, I think um, I think with the global trucking, I think they had been on Virgin, you know, Richard Branson's label, and yes. I think I think they were either breaking up or broke up when the album came out for obvious reasons. I think when you have a shared house with anybody, especially your bandmates, it probably means you're going to nightmare. You're going to. Well, I did that with Andy Roberts. It was a nightmare. And uh, oh yes, so I think at the same time I'd done some recording, some producing for. Um, for Neil Aspinall, who used to run Apple. Right. Apple, and um, we got on well. And I'd done a couple of albums, and he and he suggest he said, look, Apple Studios was empty, almost derelict at that point, in, in Savile Row. And uh, he asked me, he said, look, John, John Lennon loves this studio. It's his favorite studio in England. And when he gets his green card, He's going to want to come back here. Can you get it going with your pal engineer, Bob Potter, who was, me and Bob used to work a lot together. Can you get it going? So Bob and I had the, key, I had the keys to Apple Studios. So, um, and we got it going. We got everything. I remember, you know, changing the motors and student machines and all this stuff. And we got it going. So as a result of that, I used to be able to use the studio um, not not all the time, but if I wanted to do a project, I would go in. So uh, I think I said to James and Mike, "Look, let's um, let's go and make the album." That's what I own of us. We did it at Apple Studios. Right, um, fantastic. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I'm yeah, just amazing. It was amazing in the Apple Studios, and I had the keys. I mean, it was incredible. <laughs> and uh, there was all this Beatles shit everywhere. You know, piles of awards and all kinds of stuff and the pianos and all this stuff that My God. they used. Thank God eBay hadn't even been invented then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Although it all got stolen, I think. Yeah. Eventually. It's interesting. I, mean, I, did... I remember the door, the door used, they changed the door every like every month and because people would carve all, they would always carve their way through the door, they'd have to replace it. And I remember going there, I would come back from like some club, you know, like Tramble or somewhere at three in the morning and I'd go down there and there'd be like three or four little Japanese girls kind of huddled in the rain by the door like waiting for the Beatles to come back. <laughs> this is probably ten years after, well not ten years but a few years after yes. they'd broken up. You know, it, was, it was a strange thing. But great, in retrospect it was it was great, and I was very lucky. Well, absolutely. And I guess, and, and what's your memories like of that session with James and Mike? And uh... not, a, not great. I mean, I have some images of us in the studio, but, but I remember, I mean, it would probably be very quick. We probably did it in, I don't know, I mean, relatively quick. We probably did it in three or four days. Yes. Um, the, we didn't do we didn't do lots and lots of takes. I remember. I mean, they were good players. Um, you know, so I think it went down pretty quick. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and there was a good spirit. You know, there were. We always got on well together. There was, I mean, some bands. It's 
it can it's been a nightmare with sunbands. <laughs> but with them, I think it was always, uh, you know, I don't know. It was a time. Was, it wasn't a big deal. It's just this is how we play it. One, two, three, four. Do it. Okay, well maybe we could do a better solo. Do, you know, I would think we probably didn't do more than than two or three takes of anything. Yeah, that's right. And then, so that was kind of seventy-eight times, obviously. Um, yes. Yeah, so then. You when know, was that, 78? Yeah, 70, I think it was 70. Let's just check that fact. Yeah, it was 78. So, um, yeah, that w- that was that. And then you obviously, you know, fast forward a few years. I mean, well, we had the punk. We, well, punk was kind of um, kind of ending on a slightly, you know, like any scene, it kind of gets a bit sort of messy and then it comes a bit corny. As I said in With Nell and I, they're suddenly selling hippie wigs in Woolworths, so you realise that that's kind of over. And then yeah. we had the post-punk scene. And then that early 80s, you know, we had that, the world that was, you know, the U2, Simple Minds. And in 83, one of the most important years of music, um, the, the Smiths appear. And you are right there, aren't you? Well, uh, yeah, again, I mean, good, I guess, lucky timing, you know. Um, I mean, and I have to say here that... That the, all that 80s music, and now I'm going to condemn myself here, <laughs> didn't, didn't really do much for me at all. Excellent. Um, but I said it as we started, I, I loved black, I basically loved what we used to call black music, or it used to be called R&B, rhythm and blues. Yeah. And um, so, so I didn't have much interest in... In eighties, not all those synthesizer bands. No, well, I suppose it had and stuff, and it didn't honestly didn't do much for me. But having said that, it's a bit like I decided I, I wanted to produce records. I always, I always did from pretty early on. I always thought that um, Sam Phillips had the coolest job in the world. You know, you know who Sam Phillips was. Yes, Sun. You know, Sun Records. And he was the first, you know, all those great... I mean, I loved the Elvis, Elvis's rock and roll trio, the early trio with Bill Black and uh, and Scotty Moore and all that stuff and all that early Howling Wolf that he, that he recorded in Memphis and stuff. And I just thought, that's got to be the coolest job in the world. You're sitting there. These guys are... Basically, you are the audience. They're playing for you. And you're the first person ever in, in the world to hear this stuff. And not only can you say that, but you can tell them to do it again <laughs> or, you know, change the key or whatever. And I thought, man, well, that's like, you know, that's like being God or something. It is God. So I decided that I wanted to make records. And I also, I mean, it, it takes some time to hone your craft. But by the 80s, I was still pretty clueless, but I knew that that music is music and it's made out of the same building blocks whether it's the sex pistols or you know beethoven whatever. you know it's you you use octaves and you split the octaves into certain intervals and, and you end up with a basically eight notes or 12 notes or whatever how you want to look at it and that's what you have to that's what you have to use to cook all this stuff up and so I realized, I know, so I knew that I had to hone the craft and that I didn't, ha- I didn't have to wait for something that I thought was where I was at musically, basically, because I knew if I did that, I would never find anything because, I, you know, I'm, 
it just wouldn't have happened. So, and I got that job at the Beaver working with all kinds of bands. I mean, everything, you know, from Kajagugu to Elvis Costello and everything in between. And, um, and so to me, it was also, it was like, yeah, I wanted to do it properly. Yes. I knew, and if I didn't, if it was something, you know, I could really dedicate myself to something, to doing it didn't mean that I was going to go home and listen to it all the time. It was like, no, you know. Um, I, I was painting. I used to be a painter, and I knew that you had to learn how to paint. And the fact that if you didn't want to have to paint something, a particular image, you needed to get that technique in your arsenal to be able to paint it. And then once you had the technique, you could, you know, leave it or use it or leave it kind of thing. And it was the same, very much making records. And I'd sat in a lot of, I spent a lot of time in studios by then. Um, so with reasons. I used to live next door to Island Studios in Basing Street, and I pretty much lived there for a couple of years. On everybody, sitting on everybody, the Whalers, Steve Winwood, Free, all those bands. I, used to, I was in the studio for lots of that. And so, so when that started, and so when the 80s thing happened, and I started to, do that it was i didn't necessarily it wasn't my music but i but i thought i can make it better yes i can i i you know i know enough i know <laughs> that sounds terrible but i know more than these guys yeah well absolutely to make this sound good you know and your and your timing must have been right because because I know a few I mean there was Glenn Johns who seemed to be another go to producer there was Stephen oh, Street fantastic. there was fantastic. Stephen Street yeah. who really came of age in the nineties and there was also people like Mark Saunders and a guy called yep. uh, and Tim somebody who I can't remember his surname now who I've interviewed and um, God yes my mind's gone blank Tim somebody anyway yeah, yeah I think I know Tim Tim Tim's a fellow my mind's gone black. <laughs> I know. That, and there was another guy who said his first job was doing that peak, had a deep purple one. I think it's Fireball where he got that sound at the beginning where it sounds like some engine revving up and he explained it was some sort of heating system or cooling system that he recorded. But I can't remember his name. That's terrible. I should have done my homework. But <laughs> but you obviously had your CV. You weren't one of the mates of the band who had absolutely no idea what you were doing but you twi- twi- twiggled enough you must have thought look guys I know what I'm doing just you well look this. with the Smiths I'd yeah. met the, actually at first it started um, I got a call from Jeff Travis Jeff. Rough Trade yes and he said look I've got this band the Smiths I mean I'd seen their name I didn't know what they sounded like or anything. he said and they've made a record we've made a record we said I don't think it's as good as it should be. And I've got a bit of a reputation, as such as I, any reputation, I didn't have, as, as being a good clean-up guy. So I, for some reason, I'd, when people had made the record and spent all their money, then the record company, or whoever was responsible for it, didn't think it was quite right. I used to get the phone call and, can you, can you sort this out? And I'd done that a few times, and I think that's how Jeff, I don't know how Jeff. Somebody had said, oh, well, Porter might be a good, you know, I'd give it to him to listen to. So Jeff said, so he said, can you listen to it? So I took it in the studio, the master tapes of this album, Regent Sound Studios, I think, in uh, wherever that was, Pinchley Road or wherever it was. And um, I took it and I listened to it. And so I said to him, look, 
it's out of tune. There's a lot of tuning problems. There's a lot of timing problems. Um, how much how much of money have you got to to finish it? Because I said quite honestly, I think rather than trying to fix everything, I think I think it would be easier to do it again. Um, because it's so time-consuming fixing everything, yes. and in the, you know, in those days everything was on tape. It wasn't like you could, you know, tinker around with digital stuff. I mean, it was much more laborious process, technically. And um, so he said, I think he, I think he said he had five hundred quid or something. I don't know. It was very little. And I, so I said, well, look, I think. You're better off. We get a better result if we start again from scratch. I think the the album had been done somewhere in London by Troy Tate. Yes, um, he was a nice chap actually. And so, so yeah, so so we we booked we booked a studio in Manchester called Pluto, which was a you know probably pretty cheap studio, and I think we had. Was it four or five days to do the album? So we went up. And, oh, the, in the, yes. Subsequent to that, something else had happened. I'd done a BBC session where I was working with the Smiths, right? And and struck up quite a, a, a friendship with Johnny. And I saw him being like a younger brother. I thought, well, these are clueless young guys from the north in London, just as I was a clueless young guy from the north in London. But I had, I'd been there, you know, a few years before. So I was kind of a bit more clued in, but I felt a real um, <laughs> kinship with Johnny. Honestly, like he felt like he was a younger brother or something. So I, and so when, I guess when Jeff Travis mentioned the possibility of me working with them, I, I guess they thought, okay, we've just done this BBC session and we got on well. So, um, so we went up to to Manchester, and I remember we got through the till Thursday. Third, we'd fin recorded everything, the tracks, Thursday night, done most of it. And I remember saying, to, right, let's listen to everything. This was Thursday evening. We finished Friday night. And we listened, and I think that I'd, seven out of the tracks were not good enough. And I, <laughs> I think we recorded seven of the songs on the Thursday night. <laughs> and by the Friday night, we sort of finished and came back down to London, or I came back down to London. And, um, and then in the meantime, I think in the, within the next two or three days, I think Seymour Stein had taken an interest in the band and had signed them to Sire in America. And so there was a bit of dough. So whereas I'd been coming back expecting to mix this record in a probably in a day. And then he'd do every any overdubs and then just mix the whole thing. I think there was a bit more money. So I was able to take it into a good studio, which was Eden Studios in Chizzy, and do do some few overdubs, a few more overdubs, spend a bit more time with Johnny. I think, and I can't remember whether we did more vocals with Mother or not, but um, that saved us a little bit, so I was able to mix it in a good studio. I mean, I still, you know, if I hear it now, it still sounds like, oh my God, we should have, 
you know, we should have done better than that. But um, well, interesting so enough, things were good. But there was just things like um, "Reel Around the Fountain," which was a great song, and I never, I they never, to my mind, nailed that down. That could have been so great. But you know, looking back, it doesn't matter. The fans that liked it loved it. You know. Well, interesting enough, that that first album. Yeah, there seemed to be quite a story with that sound. But then when they did the, the collection compilation of Hat Full of Hollow, that that production sound is, so I think, so much better. And it sounds, oh, yeah, I pref- much prefer that album. And you're, you're obviously a producer on that as well, aren't you? <laughs> I think most of it, yeah. Yes. Well, I think, but that was a compilation, wasn't it? It was, but it did... That had, was it, there it's, was a lot of singles and, and things that were associated or B-sides or whatever extra tracks. And so those weren't done on that initial session. Those no. were done. These were all the, the job pills in London, by which time, you know, they learnt quickly. And I, and I had certain um, ways of working with the band. You know, I got to know them much better and how to push them. And Johnny was a quick learner, so I could rely on Johnny. So basically... After that, Johnny and I pretty much made the records. And, you know, we would put tracks down, and then Mark Morrissey didn't really care. I, I, early on, I found, you know, I tried to get everybody in the band, always recording with a young band, tried to get them all interested in the process. Yeah. And show them what's this, and these are returns, this is, you know, this is, this is all this, and this is how this works. And sometimes people pick up on it and some don't. And nobody in the band picked up on it except Johnny, who was always interested. So if I was saying, well, i got to do this, fellas, you know, um, it's going to take me a couple hours to... I've got to edit these takes together and make notes, you know, do a bunch of takes. And Johnny would stick around. He would be interested in the process. So, and then it got to the, you know... So we we worked a lot together on it. And Morrissey, and then I would take a... <laughs> And, uh, do a rough mix of where we were at and take it and post it through Morris's letterbox on a cassette, you know, put it on a cassette, and then he'd come in later on and sing it. That's generally what happened. Um, sometimes Morris, yeah, and and obviously Andy and um, Mike Mike would do their bit, and then they would, you know, go off and smoke dope or watch TV or do whatever they did, and. Um, that was a process. So by the time, so Hatful of Hollow was probably, was more, you know, it was, a, yeah, it was better. Also, I had a Lindrum, which, because their timekeeping was really not great. They were good live, but in the studio, you know, that doesn't cut it that much. <laughs> so I used, um, I used to program up a, a thing on the Lindrums, a percussion thing that sounded like, you know, like a good groove. And I would get them to play along to that, and that tightened them up a lot. In fact, the first single, um, uh, "This Charming Man," I think. All, ha- all that, hand I in glove. Programmed the whole. I actually programmed the whole mic part into the Lindrum, and they, they played to that. And I put the drums on last. That's something that uh, probably people don't want to know. <laughs> 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 but um, yeah, and it worked. I mean, I basically. You know, got a takedown of what of how they played it, and then I copied the drums exactly, but but in time. Well, it's interesting because there so was a they played to that. 
because there was a film that came out a few years ago about a band called The Wedding Present and, and doing their oh, yeah, album. I, think I did them. I did them at the Beaver. Um, George Bear, this album, George Bear. And there was a huge bit in the film about the drummer and the producer and the click track and the drummer basically. Oh, there's all sorts of issues. I think the drummer leaves, the producer leaves, then he comes back. And it's like, you know, they, they needed a lot of therapy in that session. I didn't realize that whole thing with drummers, click tracks, and, and the timing. And it was it, a big deal at that time. It was a big deal. Um, it was a big deal. There, were, there weren't many English drummers, comparatively, who were good in the studio. Yes, all just any drummers. Um, there really weren't. And, and the rec- you know, a building is only as good as its foundations. So I've, I used to find that so frustrating, especially because the kind of music I liked, you know, which was, as I say, black American R&B. Yeah, James and, Brown would not they accept were tight, that. You know, they were <laughs> tight. The drummers kept time, you know. And, if, you know, you don't want to make a record where somebody's going to fall over and break their ankle because of a drum fill. And no. You, you and, I, and, and we love those James Brown bits where he's looking at a, a member of the band saying, I've got you, I've got you, you know, like, I'm going to find you later, you know. <laughs> yeah, that, that's going to be 50 bucks. Yeah. That's going to be, I you worked know. with them subsequently. Did you? Blimey. So yeah, when... Some of those stories are just amazing. Yeah, so kind of... But then you become the go-to, I mean, eighty from 84 or 83, right through the 80s, your, your sort of book, your diary, is packed with indie bands and more bands, aren't you? I mean, you go back to work with the Smiths again, don't you? I did. It was a funny thing. It was a strange situation with the Smiths. I mean, when we initially did the stuff, Morrissey was... They were, every, they were all really happy. Obviously, why not? They were having a hit, you know, they started to have hit records and blah, 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 and there's a, a buzz about them. And Morrissey used to send me um, postcards really nice little postcard saying, you know, how much he'd enjoyed it and thank you for this and blah, blah, and that was all very nice. I think after... And I think I started after This Charming Man, which we did twice. We did it in London and we did it again in Manchester. Um, the Manchester one is the one that got released as a single and because I used the Lindrum because I, they just were too sloppy. I thought we can't you know, same deal, we can't put this out. But I think pretty soon after that, I think Morrissey started to not like me. I think, in truth, that he was jealous of the fact that Johnny and I had this great relationship, by which time Johnny and I were, I mean, I'm, you know, quite a lot older than they are. But we used to hang out together and smoke piles of dope and do, you know, we'd do these sessions. I mean, we'd be there, we'd come out in daylight, you know, and uh, and we had fun making records. I mean, to the point where we were going to do a single, and Johnny would phone up and say, "Right, because they were on the road a lot. Can you book a studio for Saturday?" I said, "Yeah, yeah. But what do you want to do? What are we going to do?" And he said, "Oh, just um, think of think of T Rex. We'll do something like that." It's like, okay. <laughs> and that was the uh, that was the brief, you know. We and some of the good stuff we'd make up on the spot. I mean, now and again. I, I would say probably more often than not they had the bones of a song, but um, sometimes they didn't. And we were, we, we got, we, we had, yeah, we got to the point where we we could work well in the studio. So I think after a bit, Morrissey started to resent me. I remember him saying that I was too old. 
And then one session we did, I had hired an engineer, an old pal of mine, Richard Digby Smith at Island Studios, a great engineer, digger. And when I got to the studio, he wasn't there. And um, I said to the studio owner, or not the owner, this was Island Studios, the old fallout shelter. So where's where's Digger? He said, oh, I've got you this other guy. Um, he said, he's a young guy. He said, the band will like you. And I said, well, I want to use Digger, you know. I, I know. <laughs> but anyway, so the other, so the young kid was Stephen Street. And we were doing, um, we were doing Heaven Knows. Oh, miserable now. now. And uh, we did it. And as, but as soon as Morrissey came in, I sort of looked at Steve and I thought, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> I think Morrissey really fancied him, you know. And uh, anyway, so that was that. We did that. And then the next, then a few weeks later, I think if I'm, my chronology is not that great. But Johnny again said, called up and said, can you book a studio? Um, you know, we're going to do this song. So I said, yeah. So I think I'd booked the Friday and the Saturday or something at Regent's, uh, no, somewhere around that, Mayfair Studios. And uh, so we got and we did this track. And um, and then um, and then I think Morris, I don't know, I don't know. Well, it turned out that we did, I did the Friday. We did the track. We actually finished it. And I thought, oh, I'll mix it tomorrow. And then um, Morrissey or Johnny, well, they tell me that we're in with somebody else tomorrow. We're doing another session tomorrow. Um, so I, uh, I said, oh, okay, right. Which I thought was a bit strange. Well, so the next day they went and did the same song again with Stephen Street. <laughs> um, what was the song? I can't remember. Sheila takes a bow, or um... might have been, but anyway. So then I knew the writing was on the wall, and uh, that was it, you know. And then, but Johnny and I, because we were friends, Johnny, you know, Johnny would call up or come round to my house or whatever and say, "Look, I really want to work with you." He'd always say that. He said, "I don't want to work with anybody else." But Morrissey wants to work with Steve Street or whatever, and. Um, so it was like, well, okay, you've got to do what you've got to do, you know. Um, so I kind of um, went on doing what I was doing, I don't know. And they did a, you know, they started to work, I guess, with Stephen Street. But then, then I, they got back to, I don't know why, I don't, I can't remember now. But but it was okay, we, we're going to try, you know, we'd like to work with you as well. Um, which I think was largely Johnny's kind of, you know, in, well, I think they, they they did have a they had a lot of kind of issues to do with not having a manager, and, and I remember Johnny oh, saying, "There's all that going on, yeah, yeah." That's right. And Johnny saying that one minute he's trying to book the van for a tour, and then he's doing yeah. this, then he's trying to make an album, and I think he was having a something called a nervous breakdown, wasn't he? So I think he was eventually yeah. there was, and then there was the well, whole. Then, I think that's right because I remember doing a bit of mixing for um, what was it Queen is Dead? Was it? Yes. So I, yes, I think Johnny at the end of it just had enough. Said, "Look, can you uh, sort this out?" So I did a bit of mixing on that, and then he said, "Well, I want to go back in the studio again." And so we did, and then we did, um, which I thought was their best thing, which was "How Soon Is Now," and a couple of others. Please, please let me get what I want, which I thought was was a great song. 
and William, I think it was, it was actually it was a session for William. That was the only song that we had. And the the rest, and how soon is now, was just a jam, essentially. Um, however, at this point, I must point out that um, <laughs> Johnny and I remain really good friends. We didn't see each other much, but but we, you know, we get to a couple of times a year. We we talk for hours and hours on the phone and uh, get together or whatever. Yes. And uh, recently, uh, about a year ago, some magazine. Um, called me about something and asked about this song and I told I gave my story and, I, and then uh, uh, since then Johnny's actually fallen out with me he's kind of defriended me he's completely fell out with me over this over, over me telling my recollections of how something happened and he said to me that's not what I said in my book and I was like well, okay sorry you <laughs> didn't read your book Johnny didn't know you know but your so memory... That's very sad, because right until about nine months ago, probably, we've, we've always been quite good friends, you know, and uh, and now he won't speak to me. Well, it's not that he won't speak to me, it's just that we, we're not friends anymore. My God, uh, that's just so sad, isn't it? Uh, it's, it, it is sad. It's sad. After all this time, it's sad. And I, I will, of course, stick to my end of the story, and he presumably will stick to his, and that's fine, and... He, you know, the story as is remembered will be his version because, <laughs> because um, you know, history belongs to the victims, yes. I believe. And was he's more of a victim than I am in this. So yeah. it's fine. It's fine. It's just what it is. It is kind of sad. Yeah, well, absolutely. But I enjoyed working with him a lot. But after How Soon Is Now, I got fired again by Jeff Travis because he said, this doesn't sound like the Smiths and you're having far too much influence on the band. And they put it out as a B-side, they put it out as an extra track, they put it on a 12-inch, they did all this stuff with it before realizing what I'd said initially, <laughs> that this is really good, and uh, it got out. And it's, it, it was what I wanted to do all the time with the Smith. Once we had a couple of hits, was to make something that I thought might cross over to America might be successful in America because I thought those little two and a half minute kind of breezy songs were not necessarily going to get through that much to an American audience yes. and and so I how soon is now there was some design in in the, behind that of let's try and expand the audience you know make have a hit in America and subsequently that is if if you're in America that's the one pretty much Except for this Smith, you know, like this, this, this cult Smith fans, that's the one that's known in America, you know, and that's the one that yes. you, hear, you hear on the radio all the time. So, but I got fired after that by Jeff Travis because he said, you know, that's not like the Smiths, you're, you're having too much influence. So that was on How Soon Is That, which you also play with. Now, on just, just roughly, and not, I don't need the detail, but what was the incident? You have two different versions with Johnny about. What was was that a recording session or was that just something completely? It was over how soon is now. Oh right. I played the slide guitar on it. Oh. And I played the mandolin on um, on uh, please please please. Right. And he and he claims that he did it, and he said I should have never have told anybody that I'd done it. Blimey, yes. Uh, and what happened, I kept reading 
It's one of those things, it's, it's very silly. It's so inconsequential that the friendship should end over something so inconsequential as that that I find it difficult. But, but do you know what? I don't really, really want to talk about No, it, no, God, no, sorry. I, did, I didn't want to. Sort of, I didn't. But, um, no, no, it's fine. I mean, it is what it is. I did it, and I know I did it. And he knows I did it, but he won't admit it because he's... Because it's quite a recognised thing, and people love it. But um, I mean, the early, in the early days when we just recorded, and they were on tour. I remember having to go home. Um, I was in America, and I had to go back and get the master tapes, which were in my attic in London, my house, which was rented. And I had to record that part. I had to copy that part that I played onto and put it on a foot pedal so that when they were playing live, he could, he could press the button and that would happen. And, it <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, it's, but it's so inconsequential. I mean, it got, you know, I played on lots and lots of records and that's what you do as a producer. If you, you know, at some point, if you think there's a good, and I remember at the time, I, you know, I used, usually say to somebody, if I've got a part, I think, look, this would be good. And I've done that a lot with Johnny. Something like this might be good. And um, I'd play it, and he'd say, oh, yeah, yeah. But at that point, we'd, we'd done so much, I think, you know. Plus, Johnny didn't play slide guitar anyway. But I played on quite a few of their records, just odd little bits, because it was like I'd do something as a guide for him. And he said, no, that's fine, you know, move on, which is... You know, what happens in studios when you're making records is basically if somebody does something, it's got a part and do it. <laughs> it's, it's your record, you know. In the, you know um, it doesn't matter who did it. But unfortunately, as I say, he took, he took exception. And what had happened is I got an email from some thing, emails you sh saying information you should know, one of these things, how do you get, you know, that just, I guess, algorithms on the computer. And I got up, had my breakfast one morning, and opened the thing, and it says, uh, and, it's, and it's an article you might be interested in. And it was an article in a in a guitar magazine about how that was recorded, how how soon as now was recorded. And I'd done so many interviews, main, mainly with technical things over the years, you know, like studio magazines, mix magazines, stuff like that, rather than guitar player magazines or anything. I'd done so many interviews about that track, and I, I remember it quite well, you know. And so there was this, they sent me this article, and it was all wrong. I thought, no, this is not right. You know, we didn't do it like that. We didn't do it like that. Let's um, put the record straight, finally, once more. So I wrote back to the magazine and said, well, with all respect, I was there. And this isn't how that happened. This is how it happened. And I kind of detailed it and forgot about it. And then uh, that's what caused it. Yes. But funnily enough, it wasn't anything. I think Johnny's brother hipped into it or something. Because he called me, he was in, I'd never heard him so angry. And, and um, yeah, what was really silly was that I'd said the same thing maybe 20 times in interviews over the years in magazines, you know, technical magazines, which were obviously magazines that Johnny probably didn't, wasn't aware of or you know, hadn't read. It wasn't like I was suddenly coming up with some story that I'd made up. It was just uh, that that was the first time he was, you know. <laughs> and we haven't spoken since. It's a 
shame. Yes. So there we are. There you go. That's Johnny for and you. You can say what you. I mean, I don't know. This is supposed. To, it's up to you whether you impart that information on your program or not. I mean. Well, I mean, it's 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 hard. You know, I. You know, it's hard. You know, it's it's I don't know. It's not like we have sort of given the secrets away of some you know important no, government. Exactly. government. You know what surprised me afterwards was thinking about the stuff that the Johnny said in this phone call, and but it's so inconsequential. It's who cares, man? Who cares if the if the bloody cleaning lady played the fucking guitar? <laughs> I mean, it's your record. It's part of you know. It's. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I mean, I've played on, you know, Eric Clapton records, played on Rolling Stones records and stuff. I mean, if I suddenly stuck a, made an interview and said I played the guitar on Tulsa Time by Eric Clapton, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure Eric, well, he's a pretty weird guy these days, but I'm sure Eric wouldn't mind. It wouldn't suddenly call me up and start screaming at me. <laughs> He'd just think, well, you know, he didn't say anything. He'd say, yeah, fine, he did, good. He got yes. paid, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I know, this is all very true. So it, it just seems trivial, you know, to me. But the fact that... Yeah, anyway, uh, let's move on. Talk yes, poor old, poor old. Yeah, but, I mean, what's also kind of, in, you know, having... You know, because, I mean, it wasn't just the Smiths you worked on. I mean, you did sort of work on a phenomenal other amount of bands. Well, because I was working at the Beeb, too, doing all those... St- quite a number of those were actually being released as records, those sessions I did at the Beeb. I remember one session with the UB40. We did Red Red Wine. This was before the single. And something else, another one, subsequent one, I can't remember. But two of them, which became huge hits. And I used to tell bands, no bands didn't know this. Most of the bands, because BBC didn't tell them, but I would tell the band, look, you can buy the reel of tape. If there had been a good session, you can buy the tape for 50 quid and nobody the bands didn't used to know that and the BBC I don't think liked band people to know that <laughs> but if we'd had a good session I would say to the band look this is good you, you, you can buy it for 50 quid because if not the next session I mean I've seen it happen I'd, do, I'd finish a session mixing everything finish it do the final mix put it on tape and then 10 minutes later they were raising the tape for the next session so Unless you actually put a hold on it or said, look, I'm going to buy this, it would be gone within a minute <laughs> in the original tape. And I remember saying to UB40, look, this is good. You should buy this. 50 quid, which they did, and there were two number one hits came off. <laughs> good purchase, yes. There you go. That's which is great, because I used to get 50 quid a day as well, I think. So I got 50 quid out of it. <laughs> yeah. <as> well. <laughs> But what I what I noticed from your really extensive uh, CV here is that because with a lot of I mean I noticed it with some producers and I've definitely noticed it with some photographers like Mick Rock they have their kind of zeitgeist moment and then you can tell that actually something they've they've kind of they're not quite on the groove anymore but you've many you managed to navigate the next decades quite comfortably didn't you I mean you, you didn't sort I, of well no, I did actually I, again I you know I was very lucky. But I went to, back to the States in when? About 1988. Uh, I would say late 80s. And I, you know, I had young children, which was another reason I, decide, I decided 
to not concentrate on being a mute, you know, to concentrate on recording, because then I could be, well, I thought possibly mistakenly that I could be home much more often. But um, so, but late eighties. I mean, after after the punk thing, I wasn't getting very much work. I mean, I was doing a lot. I would do stuff because I wanted to get better and wanted to keep my hand in. But I wasn't getting hired. Funny enough, from the, I didn't get hired for anything from the Smiths. I thought that would get me work because yes. of work from his. But I didn't. Stephen Street got loads and loads of stuff. You know, like the, what was the Irish band? They were great. There was, was a lot of stuff. But I wasn't getting offered anything. So, And that combined with the fact that I wasn't crazy about English music. It's probably why I wasn't getting hired. Um, I went off to LA and um, and uh, yeah, started to work there. I mean, in the meantime, a few things had happened, I guess. Although it's when I'd gone straight back to me, I'd, a pal of mine, um, Andrew Lauder, had a record label, Silvertone. Oh yes. He, previ- he previously had Demon, I think, with Jake Rivera or whatever, doing Elvis Costello. And I knew Andrew liked, he was a proper music guy, you know, like the old school, Chris Blackwell and and uh, Amit and all those guys. He was into the music. And I knew he liked a lot of the music I liked. And I, I loved Buddy Guy. After Freddie King and B.B. and Albert King and Buddy, they were all my heroes, you know. And I knew Buddy hadn't made a record in about 10, 12 years. And... Um, so I said to Andrew, look, if I, because Andrew's got this sort of relatively new label, um, if, I can get, if I can get Buddy to, if I can make a record with Buddy, will you put it out? And he said, yeah, I'd love to. So, so when Buddy came over, to, I knew he was coming to do some gigs, like Dean Walls, quite small gigs. So I, I talked to Buddy, and uh, in fact, I did a couple of gigs with him. And... Um, and we we got you know had a good relationship. I said, would you would you you know can we make a record? Do you want to make a record? And he was yeah yeah yeah. So I organised it and um, we put it out. And by which time I moved back to America or, or whatever. But we came back to England to do it because because the label was through Zomba was uh, Silverton had a linked with Zomba, and Zomba had battery, owned battery. So there's battery studios and all that. So he said, well, can we do it in the in-house studio? So I came back to him, and we did that record pretty quick, and again, less than five days, maybe. And um, and subsequently, that was a, was a million seller, I think. Right. Not straight away, but over the course of, you know, and uh, which was unprecedented for a blues record. I think, I think the only other ones that had ever done that were uh, Robert Johnson, which did it, and uh, later on I think Eric Clapton's from the Cradle, maybe, and another one. But I think it was pro- I think it was the first million seller blues record. So then that kind of established my credentials a, a bit with, in the blues area, <laughs> which was what I loved. I mean, that was my, in, you know, that's what got me going in the first place as a, as a musician, and I loved it, and I know it well, and I know a lot about the music, and I love the music. So, yes. There's so one... then I got stuff, you know, so that made people, because in, in America people thought, such as they even 
knew who I was. But you know, they associated me with the Smiths and possibly with Roxy Music and Brian, neither of whom were huge in America. They were known, but they hadn't had hits in America or anything. So that gave, you know, so then people knew that I wasn't just a, um, an alternative music guy or an art school kind of yes. <laughs> band guy, you know, which was good. And I worked and I did some good stuff. I mean, I, again, I've been so lucky. Um, but I've always worked hard and I've always taken, I, I like good music, good soulful, I like good music. I don't really, I don't really, besides what I actually like, I don't draw lines between one kind of music and another. I, my main lines for music are, is it good or is it bad, you know? I mean, if it's, if it's I like most kinds of music, if it's good. <laughs> so if, you know, if a punk band wants to make a record or a country band or a southern rock band or anything, I'm up for it if it's good. You know, songwriting's good and the guys are soulful and put everything into it. I love it. You know? Yes. I, Does one... I, like, I mean, I've made quite a lot of jazz records, too. I love jazz. Yes, and, well, uh, but so just, um, I was just so that thing of when I was in England and before I went back to America, it was um, I really was thinking I'm going to have to be a cab driver because there's nothing happening. Nobody wants me to work with, me. and for some reason I never got offered any of those bands that I that I think I might have been able to contribute to, you know, um, that were hugely successful. And the, the you know the English guitar bands or whatever. I mean, the only one I was offered and I didn't do because I didn't, I just didn't do it was um, the other band on Silverton, one from Manchester. Um, what were they called? And the guy was rude to my wife. Um, Marky Smith? Oh, who were they? I can't remember. They were huge for a minute. But I remember them calling up. We were going to make a record. Well, was it Julian Coe? They wanted me to work with them. Um, Stone Roses. Oh crikey! Yes, Silvertone. Yeah, they were. They were. Yeah, <laughs> Andrew wanted me to work with him, and uh, <laughs> and, I, and so I guess they called up to have a talk. One of the guys called up, and I was in the studio with Johnny doing something for Johnny. I don't remember where it was, and uh, my wife answered the phone, and he and he said, and she said, oh, he's didn't, you know, he's not here. He's working. And so the guy says, well, what's he doing? He said, oh, he's working with Johnny Moore. And he started ranting at my wife, saying, well, he's working with that cunt, fucking brother. <laughs> and so, and, uh, so she, she politely put the phone down. And I thought, well, if that's how they are, I don't want to work with them, you know. No, can't and, and so I didn't, so that was the one that I turned down. And, uh, yeah, that's, but other than that, there was very little. I was doing all these little, you know, as you say, independent labels and, so I was doing a lot, quite a lot of stuff, but it was all a bit inconsequential, and I felt that it wasn't um, it wasn't exciting for, for me really. It was good learning curves and dealing with people and how to. I mean, in some cases, these bands really couldn't play. I mean, I did do quite a lot of punk stuff in the, before all that. I played on quite a lot of punk records and stuff, and um, there was, you know, so that early eighties thing, the mid eighties. There weren't a great deal of good, what I call good musicians around. I mean, you worked with somebody like Elvis Costello and his band were great. They were proper, or Nick Lowe and all that, you know, those guys. They yes. were good, but the slightly younger generation, and all those synth bands, you know, like the, the 
I, I would do them at the BBC, and it, it was a good as a technical exercise, and good as right. Let's see if we can do this. Cause, but other than that, it wasn't there wasn't any musical satisfaction in it really. <laughs> so in the end, towards the end of the eighties, but before I went to America, I was literally thinking, well, I'm going to have to find a job <laughs> um, to um, you know pay for my kids' schooling and everything, you know. But um, so I went, and then luckily. Um, luckily, uh, I was kept in work right until, uh, and slightly after the the demise of the record industry. You know, and when the internet came and killed it. Yes. Uh, I know it was that was. Quite and a... I knew that that was going to happen because I, I knew it was going to happen, and also I'd seen the record of the big labels. I'd seen how all the music guys had gradually gone. The guy, and it was becoming more and more corporate, and you know, people, you know, MCA and Capitol Records and all this stuff in America, they were being run by bean counters and shoe salesmen and stuff. You know, there was nobody actually knew very much about music or cared, which meant that it became very difficult to deal with them because they always felt they had to put their oar in to make themselves feel relevant. You know. So, I mean, I dealt with some real assholes. <laughs> and I thought, well, it's not going to survive. The music isn't going to survive this, you know. Um, and I made some really... And, I, and I, I know a lot of contemporaries, you know, producers and engineers and everything. And I could see that that was happening and that that, that it wasn't, you know, that we'd basically, basically got really a lot out of it, but it wasn't going to survive that long. Yes, uh, and and that world which was good for me, you know, when everybody's saying how terrible it was, you know, well, it was terrible maybe, but it was good for me, you know, in that bands would sign to a label and run up huge bills, and then owe their lives to the label, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but it worked for me, you know, I I'd, I'd make budgets and I would be get dates and I made the, I made enough mistakes to know that if somebody had, you know. X amount of dollars and X amount of days to make a record, then I knew that I could turn in the record slightly under what the amount of money that they wanted to budget and slightly quicker than the amount of time. And I could make a record that I liked, that the band liked, and that the record label liked. And that was, I think that those are the skills uh, such there are many little things, that, you know, but those are the main skills, or were the main skills, in producing a record, is to do exactly that, is to give people what they want. So I, I knew if the, if the band liked it, and the record company liked it, and I liked it, that was pretty much, that was good, you know. Yes, so that's that... always been my criterion, although now those, those that doesn't really, uh, doesn't really... Um, Mean anything now? Those, those conditions, are, the conditions are so different. It must be so difficult for young musicians. I don't know how they survive. It must be. I mean, because you know, in my day, you go and play in pubs, you know, for five nights a week or whatever, and get your act together as a musician. Yes. And no computers, no bloody computers. <laughs> Just, just almost lastly, I mean, just, um, I mean, one of the artists you work with a little bit later on is R.L. Burnside. Oh, yeah, R.L., yeah. 
I mean, and he did a couple of amazing albums. I think, it's, you know, to be honest, he's probably done more than just a couple, but I've just got a couple. What was he like to work with in the studio? He, well, he, he was difficult only because it was towards the end of his life and he was an alky pretty much. And they could only get him to do stuff by buying him a bottle of whiskey. And so he got up early in the morning. This is the end, the last time I worked with him, the last session. Um, by one o'clock, I would say, he was useless. He was drunk. One o'clock in the afternoon and couldn't remember anything. Or So it was very difficult. But it was in another sense, it's like, well, he shouldn't have, we shouldn't have put that on him. But I did an album with him, the last album I did with him, which was a, basically a tribute, in a sense, not a tribute to Muddy Waters, but it was all songs that were associated with Muddy Waters. And it's really a great record. And it's never been released. Oh. <laughs> and it's great. And I think it's probably... In, in, yeah, it's great. I'm, I actually listened to a few tracks the other day because some friend in America is, is making a movie. I think Forrest Whitaker is making a remake of Crossroads or something. I'm not quite sure. Yes. But I got this call about some tracks that I'd done with Albert King and Eric Clapton saying, did I still have those tracks which were never released because they'd be interested for this movie. So I, and, and is there anything else that I might have that might interest them? And so I listened to, amongst other things, I listened to this uh, R.L. Burnside record, and it blew me away. <laughs> but it never got released. So we shall see. Yes, that is tricky. Um, but he was, yeah, he was an old man. I mean, the last record I made, we made in an old schoolhouse, abandoned schoolhouse in a field in Mississippi. And uh, I wheeled some equipment in, and he and his band... And uh, and I put some also put some tracks together, and uh, and that's where we did it was in this field. But as I say, by usually by about some, about one o'clock, he he'd done his thing. He used to get up quite early. I remember one night, one he didn't come in the morning, and I used to go and pick him up. But I don't know where he was, and he'd basically fallen asleep in the snow outside his house, drunk. <laughs> spent the night lying in the snow outside his house. It was, um, it was difficult. God, yeah, it's a bit difficult. <laughs> that's quite, <laughs> yes, that's putting it mildly. I mean, just, just <laughs> lastly, I mean, if you could have said something, you know, to an 18, 16, year, 18 year old self kind of starting out, if it was some bit of wisdom that you've, you thought, me and there's a few bits I would just have whispered to somebody back then or even now I just wondered what you know what what you would say to them um probably the same thing I kind of felt it don't give up if you believe and believe in your you know trust your ears don't trust in what you believe in just that you can't try and second guess what people want just mm. tr trust your ears it's all about what you can hear and and recording, I've said this a number of times, it's an illusion, you know. 
Yes. You're making a sound that's an illusion. It doesn't matter how you do it. You know, if you're listening to a record or a tape or a download or a streaming, you're listening to that music. And, you know, you're listening to it as a performance. So however you make that however you get to that point, it doesn't matter how you get there. It's an illusion. So if it requires you just sticking one mic up in a room and four guys playing something for two and a half minutes, or it's done, you know, it's taken months and months and, you know, legions of musicians to put it together. It doesn't matter. It's just that final thing is an illusion and, it, and you want it to be pleasing. Um, plus, there aren't any rules. There are things which, there are really are no rules about rock and roll music or, or whatever you choose to call it. Um, I mean, there are conventions that work and you learn, you know, just like building a brick wall. If you're a good brick wall builder, you know how to build a wall and if you're a producer, you know how to construct a song. And so there are things that come, you know, that you find always work or just shortcuts or you know, you put this brick next to that brick, it'll work better, and stuff like that. You know that stuff. So that, but they're not rules; they're more conventions. So it's quite often to do, you know, and some people are really good at it. To do the opposite of what you think is what's required might be the correct move. You know, I mean, I think Eno with his um, what was it called? Oblique strategies was actually that was that was good. You know, I dug that. Still do. I think it's a good idea. Yes, amazing. Yes, I mean, it's, it's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? But look, John, this has been amazing. Thank you ever so much for your time for this. And it's great to hear a bit about... Oh, actually, that's what I was going to say. Years ago, someone gave me a film of the Barsham Fair. I mean, it's you know from 1975, yeah. so it's not that great. It's not the film that you can just see at the moment. This is a really obscure one. And, um, and recently, I don't know, you're probably not on Facebook, are you? No, I'm afraid I shy away from. No, I don't bl- shy away from, from. I was just wondering because if you if you saw it, you'd probably vaguely, I mean, be amused watching it because there is definitely pictures of Mike Story and various other people. And when you mentioned the upright guitar, um, piano, I thought, oh, actually, this bit of film. And it's only 15 minutes, and like I said, it's somebody's home recording with a soundtrack they've stuck over the top of it. Right. But you would laugh at it. Um, I don't. I know. would. I, you would definitely laugh at it because it would it would make you go oh shit I remember some of that scene of us. Well, and what is it on Facebook? Um, I just put it on because I had it and I thought to be honest this is just sitting on my you know what you you know in in one of my folders I'll I'll just put it up on my Facebook page and people can watch it and 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 you know it, it's you know like you know you just you think I think this is bits this will be safe no one's going to get upset by this bit of film which they haven't thank god but um but there is just definitely yeah. pictures of Mike Story and possibly James Lascelles as well and you might see yourself and I'm just wondering is are you just on this is just email. Well, I'm not on Facebook, but everybody else in my family is. So, so if it's on Facebook, they can have a look. Okay, I will, I'll send you a link 
because I've got your email address yes, here. Please, please do. Please I'll send do. you the Lovely. link, and then you can have a little kind of amusing moment of of sort of <laughs> of it. And like I said, it's from 1975, so there was not much footage of that fair and festival. I mean, there was one. Was kind that of, the last one? Well, it was. We called it the last fashion fair. Was last it the last fashion fair? It probably is actually, and it's of its time. I have to say. But I'll do that now because actually I'll just forget otherwise. Um, but yeah, I'll I'll send you that, and then you can send it to terrific. Well, you can have a look and and have a thing. But look, thank you ever so much again for this. This has been amazing. And, well, um, thank you. I hope it's all right. Look, if you've got any follow up things or whatever, just send me a note, and I'll I'll try and clarify matters because I realise. You know, I just tend to wander around off the point, rather. No, that's fine. I probably didn't answer any of your questions. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Anyway, look, it's all great stuff. Thanks, David. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot. Take, Take care. care. Yeah, cheers. Bye-bye. 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 And that, dear listener, if you're still listening, and well done if you are, was me in conversation with John Porter, um musician and producer i won't repeat everything that we were talking about but fascinating all the same anyway this has been the c86 show i'm david eastall um i'll probably say it again but massive thank you to john for giving me the time for that and um yes if you want to contact me for some nice reason you can on facebook twitter instagram do c86 show and also all these um fascinating interviews and chats have been archived on spotify itunes podbean just do c86 show Again, it's so simple. Anyway, look, have a great week and stay safe.